Welcome to the Discovering Commercial Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, John Yakubov, and my guest today is David Amirian. David Amirian is the founder of the Amirian Group, which is one of New York City's premier commercial and residential developers. David began his career in real estate back in 2001 at HRH Construction, where he worked on construction projects such as the Gateway Plaza Mall in East New York and the Mark at 908th Avenue, which is the Moynihan Group's first ever ground-up project in the city. Just five years later, 2006, David was named the Director of Construction at 40 Broad Street and helped convert the office building in the Satai, which was a multi-multi-million dollar mixed-use project where they added five stories on top of a 25-story commercial building and converted the 30-story building from commercial to residential. After over 11 years of work in the real estate and construction industry, David started his own firm and now develops projects all over the city, breaking numerous records and generating substantial returns for himself and for his investors. David, thank you so much for taking the time out of your schedule to do this. Thank you, John. Really Any, appreciate it. Anytime. David, before we talk about your projects and your business, let's uh, get to know you a bit. So give us a little sense of your background. Where did you grow up? Do you have any wife, kids? I grew up in Great Neck in Long Island. I was born February 25th, 1979, so I'm 43. Uh, I went to school Great Neck North, then went to American University, went to NYU after that. And um, I worked very hard for a long time and got very lucky. Met a beautiful young lady, Monica Lalazarzada. We got married in 2012, so nice. I'm married 10 years. With three beautiful children, seven, four, about to be three. Two boys, one girl. Lived in Manhattan my whole life, my adult life, I should say, up until a couple of months ago. Just moved to Great Neck. So very nice. Yeah. So uh, talking professionally, what what drew you into construction and development when you first started? I really wasn't drawn into construction. You know, people say, "Oh, I had this like aha moment." Um, I was in finance, and in four years of college, all I did was finance. I worked at Citibank and Payne Weber and Morgan Stanley and Credit Suisse First Boston. And I was on that path and September 11th really changed things for me. Um, there was no more finance jobs. And so I had a family member say, hey, why don't you go work for a construction company? And I'll never forget the day I met a guy by the name of Frank Ross Sr. who at the time was the CEO of HRH. And I give him my resume and he looks at me, he says, you're the most overqualified coffee boy we've ever had here. <laughs> he said, are you okay with getting on coffee, sweeping the floors, answering the phones? I said, do I have a choice? He goes, nope. I said, okay, so I'll start. <laughs> so you started from the bottom and you worked your way up. Yeah. So, I mean, really it's the quintessential story of my job was getting the coffee. My job was taking meeting minutes. My job was sweeping the floors counting how many guys there were in the job. That was my job. And I quickly learned that that's not what I wanted my life to be and immediately signed up for NYU. They accepted. And I started taking classes at night. And that was kind of my road for three years is going to class at NYU, making connections, learning, and, you know, learning the trade from HRH. So looking back, what was the main thing that you got from this uh, program at NYU? Is it the connections, the ex learning experience, everything all together? Um, I'd say both. You know, first, I didn't really know anything about construction. I didn't even know how to read a plan. 
And I went into a class and I learned how to read plans. I also didn't know the ins and outs of doing a model. Like they don't teach you in college how to do a real estate model. Absolutely not. Yeah. They don't. So I went there and learned how to model. Lastly, I made a lot of connections. And it's funny because people say, oh, you know, what did the connections do for you? <laughs> I was in the class and, you know, one of my friends called and says, hey, Dave, we have a major problem at our job site. And I went and met the super and the super goes to NYU. Really? For masters. Okay. Do you know this guy? He gave me his name. I'm like, he's in my class and oh. I'm friends with him. Wow. <laughs> so they brought me down and I helped to mediate the situation. And after that, that was my first real, real story about a connection that you meet someone in one walk of life and it helps you in another walk of life. And both people in that scenario came and said, hey, Dave, you know, you were the bridge here. Thanks a lot. Like, we're going to help you in the future. And that's kind of how it goes. Wow, that's, that's amazing. Um, so what, what kind of personality traits, what kind of mindset do you think it, it takes for someone to be a successful developer like yourself? You have to be okay with failure. And it's a different mindset because people always say, just strive to be better. You know, like people are going to tell you no. Banks are going to tell you no. Investors are going to tell you no. Not every project's going to make money. Um, you're going to lose. You're going to lose money. You're going to lose relationships. You're going to lose a lot of things because you cannot control the market. You can execute a business plan, but there is stuff that is far outside of your control that you cannot, you know, you can budget for it. You can say, oh, you know, we're trying to limit our exposure. But in the end of the day, if a retail, if you buy a retail and have a retailer and the retail market goes down 30% and the guy leaves and you're left with an empty retail right. and you've tried to bring other people in and it's just even if you lower and lower lower the price just this there's a limit 100%. so ultimately going back to your question you have to learn from your failures and just try to do better the next time and learn from them definitely so what's your what's your relationship with struggle in your life do you do you avoid it or do you embrace it i've always embraced it it's very difficult to embrace failure and it's very difficult to embrace the fact that you will not always be successful. I think too often we look at people that are successful and you only hear about the good times, but there are bad times and there are things that don't go well. And I think now more than ever, you look at a time where there's definite economic struggle ahead <clears throat> and those people that are able to weather this storm and come out the other side, those are the people that are successful. Definitely. So um, talking a little bit more about deals, what? how do you know when to cut a deal and when to be persistent with a deal until it works? I've underwritten enough deals where, you know, if someone has done underwritten 10 deals or 20 deals or 30 deals like oh 
what if we just change this in the model? Right. Oh, it works. Yeah. Right. I think you have to be at a deal. And I always say that you win on the buy. If you buy something right, if things go wrong, there's overruns, there's delays, problems with TCO, whatever there is. You're able to weather it because you don't have a noose around your neck. You're choking because you pay too much for the land or for the building right. or whatever. So if you buy right, it's always going to go right. I don't want to say always going to go right, but you have enough cushion then. Right. Where you're not choking because you made that mistake to overpay to get in. Right. Okay. And how do you go about setting goals for yourself and for your company? Every year on December 30th, I write... 10 business goals, 10 personal goals. I put it in a piece of paper. I, I actually type it up. I type it in a piece of paper, put it in an envelope, and I put it in a safe. Wow. It's 10 years running. And on Hanukkah or Christmas, whenever the time comes, I feel like opening it, I open the envelope. My goal is to hit 66% or greater on the goals for that particular year. Some years are good, some years are bad. Natural. Some years are at 20%, some years are at 80%, right. some years are at 50 But I, you know, Napoleon Hill said that you should have those goals and think about it every day and, and think about it and think about it and talk about it and think about it. I do that, but short-term goals I have, and I think about it every day and how I'm getting there and what I'm doing to get there. But the bigger, loftier goals that I put and push away um, you just have to work every day and just do the best that you can. Take it one step at a time. Yeah. How important are sales skills to become a successful developer? Extremely. You're forever selling yourself and your business plan. And I think you have to be able to sit in a room with someone much more experienced than you for a year two years, three years, sit in the room. Someone that's successful and is someone that treats the other person with respect. If you sit in a room and watch a guy that knows, it's not necessarily sales, it's people. Right. I think too often everyone says, oh, he's a shark or oh, he's shrewd. Right. It doesn't make you a good businessman. Right? A good business deal is when both sides are not happy, but you got to deal. You have to be able to, you know, if you screw someone else on one deal, that person is going to go tell everyone. Right. If you do right by someone on one deal, that person is going to go tell everyone too. Right. So better than doing the right thing. So your rep reputation precedes you. It's important to always keep that in mind. Reputation is key. I was in the cab yesterday with someone a lot more successful than me. And we were talking and he wanted to buy a building back in March. And the guy had an elongated closing to close by the end of this year. And he lost to someone else. That guy's financing dropped out about a week ago. So they called my friend. His name is John. Mm -hmm. Said John, oh, the guy that got the contract said he wants to partner with you. And my guy, John, said, absolutely not. I know this guy's reputation. Mm. He's, he's not done well by any of his partners. I'm not interested. 
talking about. But no, 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 they're willing to bring you in at their basis and help you and let you have control. And right. So I'm not interested. And this is what reputation does in real estate. Right. That's definitely something to keep in mind. Um, how do you deal with disrespectful brokers? I don't necessarily think it's disrespectful brokers. I think that my brother is a broker. I think that too often uh, brokers teeter that line of aggressive right. and annoying. And if a broker is disrespectful, I would say, look, I understand your point, but I've been in the business 10 years, 15 years. It's not for me. Right. Call me on the next one. Right. That's it. Shut it down. Definitely. That's what I always do. Um, what's your target resident demographic with your developments? Is it students, young professionals? Families, what is, what's the target? I think every project is different, right? So I'm building something in the Upper East Side next to Central Park, and that's for a super high-end family that's Upper East Side, Fifth Avenue, um, you know, well-to-do family. I built another project at, in Murray Hill. Mm. It was all students. It was all students and young professionals that are in Murray Hill that wanted to live in Murray Hill. So to really the project, the business plan, it all comes down to that. So you tailor each strategy to that specific submarket. Yes. Got it. So how do you balance keeping the costs low and carrying out the full vision of your project? I've learned you cannot control costs. Right. As much as I want to sit up here and say, oh, I do this, I do that. I've been in times when I was building in 2012, it was 10 years ago. Cost, hard cost to build the building were $190 a foot. $190. Wow. Okay. And we thought it would be $210. Came in at $190. And we pushed every sub because it was no work. And we knew that we had the advantage, but we pushed every sub because we knew what the environment was. Concurrently, in 2017, when hard costs were rising and rising and rising because every contractor was crazy busy and building on every single street, hard costs went from 420 to 500 a foot. Right. You have no control. And every sub says, if you don't like it, go get the next guy. And you bring the next guy and he says, I'm very busy, but I'll do it for double whatever the other right. guy wanted. Pick your poison. Right. What, what neighborhood do you think has the most potential right now in New York City? Um, what neighborhood has the most potential? The West Village. West Village. And why is that? I keep going back to the fact that everybody that is uber successful and uber wealthy want to live there. And you can't build anything there. It's all landmarked. Right. So all you can do is try to grab what's there and anything you build there is gold. Right. Anything you build. It's going to fly. It's crazy.
So I still think even where numbers are today, right. they're going to keep climbing over there. Rents and sales. Very nice. Um, what has been a deal that didn't go the way you thought it did and thought it would? And what did you tell your investors? We had a deal where we were building and we're doing a project roundup. And we, when we were doing excavation, one of the piles had air in it and popped mm. and it cracked one of the buildings next, next door. And we did everything right. Department of Buildings came, said, you did everything correctly. You were doing everything by the plan. You had a site safety guy in sight. The super was here. A contractor was here. You had protection with the neighbors, vibration monitors. Um, but it was a big delay mm. because both the buildings on both sides, the foundation had, had been compromised. So we had to fix that. Mm. We had to bring an engineer and we had to do a lot of SOE work and so on and so forth. Um, there's nothing really you can, you know, we brought all the investors in a room. Mm -hmm. There was no email or text message. Right. Brought everyone in a room. We said, guys, we have insurance, but insurance doesn't cover the bank. Right. Insurance will cover your cost for the work. But any delays that we have with the bank, we got to come in a pocket. Right. We got very lucky that our loan was at four and a half percent then. Um, but yeah, it was a very difficult discussion. Right. How do you how do you position yourself to have access to investors that other people may or may not have access to? I think there is a lot of investors out there. I think New York specifically has a tremendous, tremendous bench right. of investors. And I, it's funny because I go everywhere and I speak to everyone and every person has this pool of investors. Right. If it's Russian or Persian or Israeli or Mexican, or Irish, or South American, whomever. There's also a lot of tech guys that are investing. There's so many pools of investors. I know guys that do $50,000 per share, and right. they raise $5 million. I mean, to me, it's amazing. Right. So every person I know, you have to have that knack to be able to rope in the investors. Right, 100%. Um, how do you vet business partners? What's a, what's a telling sign that you shouldn't work with someone? You call other people that you've done business with. I think reputation, reputation. and recommendations. Right. Everyone I ever do business with, I say, who have you, you done business with? Who do you know? Right. I immediately call those people. Immediately. To say... Hey, I met Bobby Jones. Right. What do you know about him? And, you know, people that have done business with other people, it's a telltale sign right away. Right. Because if they screw someone else over, they probably will screw you over as well. Yeah. Who were your role models and people you looked up to when you were coming up in the industry? So I had one mentor. Um, so in 2002, I met a guy by the name of Anthony Raffanello Sr. Right. And he goes by Tony Raff. And Anthony Raffanello Sr. was the end-all be-all of men in construction. Right. 
he built, not to get too political, but he built for Donald Trump right. from 1979 to 1999. Did everything for him. Built all of his buildings. He was in the autobiography and the movie. He would walk in a room and everyone would stand. Right. He commanded that type of respect. And I went to him on my second job at the Gateway Retail Mall. Mm-hmm. And I said, listen, Mr. Raffanello, I really don't know anything about construction. I don't know much. But I know I want to learn. Right. And I'd love to learn from you. I said, okay, be here every morning, 6.30. We walk the site. Be at every meeting with a notepad. And you don't talk. You do not talk. Just listen. You have any questions? Afterwards, pull me aside. Right. And he was the greatest mentor I ever had. Right. So you think it's important to be humble enough to put your ego aside and tell the person, listen, I don't know anything. And I'm putting, I'm putting my trust in you. And I'm letting you kind of guide me the right direction because you know more than me. Correct. Um, let's say someone just graduated high school and is watching this right now. And they want to one day become a successful developer like yourself. What soft skills and what hard skills should they work on to make that possible? I think you got to go to school and you got to read books and you have to absorb as much as you can. Real estate, and as much as I'd like to say, start early, is an industry where, kind of like football, right? right? Where they say you need to be 21 years old in order to be in the NFL. And there's a reason for that. It's a very violent sport, right? It's very taxing on your body. And you need to be physically able to withstand the the violence and the force of the National Football League. I feel real estate is the same way. It's a very, I don't want to use the word violent, but it's a very tactical environment and people will cut you with a knife people will not give you the time of day if you don't have experience and it will kill your confidence if you're young kill your confidence and only hear no right and see failure right that's why i believe you need to be at least at the tor- at the tail end of college to get into real estate. Right. Yes, you can intern for a family member or a friend or a family friend or whatever to get your feet wet, be behind the right. scenes and get a coffee and take notes. And look, I've had over a hundred interns, over a hundred, all through college, freshman, sophomore, junior, senior. And what I've told them is just sit there, learn, right. read books, go to all the top professional guys and read their books know how to do a model, know how to read a plan, know what makes a good deal and what makes a bad deal, know what debt is, know what equity is, know what mezzanine is, know what a capital stack is, know who the players are. It takes a long time to understand who the players are, what the market is, what the comps are, land, sales, retail, rental, brokerage. If you learn all the ends of the market, It'll take you three, four years. It's not so easy. Right. Someone says, oh, 
What's the rent in Williamsburg? I don't know. Well, what's the rent in Upper East Side? Do you know the difference? Why would someone live in Williamsburg versus Upper East Side? Right. What's the rent in a walk-up versus the rent in a doorman building? Do you know the difference? Okay. Well, this building sold in downtown Brooklyn for X. This building just sold today in Miami, downtown Miami, for Y. Right. Do you know what's going on? If someone has this kind of money, do you know what a 1031 exchange is? Do you know these things? These are all things that take time, take learning, education. Right. So starting out, you have to be a sponge, absorb all the information you can and retain everything. Yeah. What three books would you recommend for a young professional starting out in commercial real estate? Um, well, one of the best books I read was from Napoleon Hill. God, the title escapes Think me. and Grow Rich. Think and Grow Rich. Um, the Art of the Deal by Donald Trump, I thought was a fantastic book. And I mean, those are the two books that uh, reach out, that resonate with me. Right. That I always thought were great books. Right. And what's your perspective on networking? What can a young professional offer you to make you want to help them? So I get this question a lot. And a lot of young professionals call me right. and say, hey, Dave, you know, I want to be in this business. Right. And I tell everyone, I'm open. I take everyone's call. I never hang up the phone. And it's very simple. You have to bring some sort of value right, to the other person. Right. That's how these relationships start. And it's funny because in 2015, I met a young man by the name of Ari Harkov, okay. yeah. who was a writer for the Daily News at the time, right. and he was doing the real estate. And we became friends. It was just like this. It was right. a news article, and he was a broker. And he was a small, smallish broker. He's now the number one broker in Brooklyn. Right. Ari Harkov. Yeah, yeah. He's number one. And I'm very close with him. I'm very happy for his success. But it started just like this. Right. He interviewed me for uh, a piece in the paper. And I said, okay. And we became friends. I'm friends with the guy seven years. And now very he's nice. top. I never would have thought. Right. But he brought value because he had that side. He had the exposure to media. And he, the, he had... Whatever he had written was going to narrate what people were thinking about me exactly. because it read in the paper. Exactly. So you as an individual, John, have to find out what your value is. Maybe you don't know it now. Maybe you'll know it in six months, maybe a year. Maybe you have investors. Maybe you know friends that own buildings. Right. Maybe you have a knack for finding people that are sellers. Maybe you know people that have loans that are... The people need help with restructuring. You never know. Right. What what trends are you excited about in the commercial real estate industry? How do you see how do you see technology disrupting the industry? Uh, my ex partner Eric Brody is very big in prop tech. Right. And he would be better suited to answer this question. But I will say that right now, and someone said it to me. 
commercial real estate is split between the haves and the have-nots. Right. If you are a class A or class B plus, fully upgraded, new, everything great, amenities, technology, everything there is to offer, you're getting great tenants and you're getting a ton of attraction. Right. If you're an old antiquated building, doesn't have these things, it's a problem. Definitely. Um, you mentioned in an interview with CNBC six years ago that the best way to predict where a market's going to go is to analyze investment sales activity, specifically the development of the development sites. Do you think that still holds true yes. to this day? Yes. If you take a look at land sales, land trades, over the past six months in New York City, we are the lowest it's been right. since back when I gave that interview. Right. It's less than a billion yeah. this year. And overall, it's an indicator that projects are not going to be built and that development is going to probably come to a screeching halt. Right. So uh, let's shift a little focus on the um, government intervention with development. What do you think about the expiration of the 421A tax exemption? And how do you think that's going to affect affordable housing being built in the city? I think there's a tremendous impact. I think the liberal portion of the government felt it was freebies for developer, which is fine. And yes, you are giving incentives to developers. Right. But I'll give you a case in point. I looked at a project in Brooklyn and it had previously had a 421A component which expired and no matter which way we looked at the deal and under it didn't it didn't pass the mustard right so we passed on it the person that is going to buy it is going to have to build full market rate units so whatever the number of units that was coming on probably was like 25 30 units yeah in that particular project is no longer going to come and you multiply that 25 30 units times let's say a hundred that are built that are supposed to be built during the next two years it's another two and a half thousand units right it's a lot of apartments it's a big difference it's a big difference how can a how can a developer make money in the down market um developers really only make money in a good market the way you make money in a bad market is to buy projects that are not doing well right that need capital and that need execution so it's not that you yourself have projects that you can do well in a down market you're going to have to pivot and do what I'm doing right now and provide rescue capital for other projects that need capital and expertise and execution. Right. What do you think is a better career prerequisite for development? Is it construction? Is it finance? Is it both? Is it law maybe? Um, I don't think there's a particular path. Right. I know developers that were in construction. Right. I know the developers that were just in finance. I know that developers that were lawyers. I know a developer that was an architect. So 
I don't know, developer that was neither of any of those things and just got a boatload of money from his family and now he's a developer. Right. So I think that it really just comes down to your own individual path and how you got there. Do you sometimes think that a developer is like a conductor in an orchestra where they have to know a little bit about everything? Yes. And kind of bring everything to the table yes. and be just the, the decision-making authority in that? Correct. Um, do you think a developer's role will ever be automated? No, you can't. There's too many decisions that need to be made on the fly. Too much of that human element. This is, this is an industry that will never change with the times. Someone has to build it. Someone has to make decisions. Someone has to deal with the neighbors, with Department of Building, with contractors, with time, with delays. No, this is an industry that is all hands-on. Right. And as a developer and owner, you are the primary decision-making authority. So how do you know when something is the right decision when you don't have anyone to look to for advice or for help experience. or for perspective? That's experience. it. It's just your experience. Right. Right. And David, I have my final question to wrap it up. What advice would you give your 22-year-old self on life, on business, and on relationships? My 22-year-old self. Let's go one by one. Let's go the easier. Relationships. Right. Take your time. It's going to take time. I didn't get married till I was 32. Right. And enjoy the ride. Uh, relationships. Some will be good. Some will be bad. You can't keep every relationship forever. Yeah. And in business, focus on what you can control. And understand there are things that are out of your control. Right. And try to deal with them the best that you can. Definitely. David, I want to thank you for coming on. This thank has you. been amazing. I hope that young professionals watching this will get some value from it and apply it to their career moving forward. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks Appreciate so much. it.